Good morning and welcome to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I'm Nathan and joining me today is Craig. Good morning. And Susie. Hello. And first on the agenda is we have some feedback. Ooh, fan mail, everybody. Right. Oh, no, wait. No, it's not necessarily fan mail. Everyone. Um, Just read the feedback and then... Um... All right. So this is from an anonymous listener who says, when you discuss listener feedback, it's like listening to Murray from Flight of the Concords. <laughs> Ooh, fan mail. Oh, nope, that's a power bill. Nope, sorry, no fan mail, everyone. False alarm, you can sit down again. It's very entertaining. I like Flight of the Concords. So <laughs> there you, you go. You bear a striking resemblance to Murray from Flight of the Concords. <laughs> I don't know which one that is. Oh, <laughs> really? You've not watched Flight of the Concords? I've watched it a couple of times. Well, right. I've watched it once through. When someone back when we were first setting up the podcast, right. and we were trying to think of a name, and someone said, "Oh, we should be that flight, was me. flight." It was you, yeah. And yeah. you were like, "Oh, we should be Flight of the Blah Blah Blah." And I was like, "Okay, fine." And it turned out I hadn't seen the show, although I'd heard of them because they've they've been comedians for ages. Right. I didn't know they had a show in America, and so I went and watched it. So it was that long ago that I saw it. Right. Um, yes, oh. anyway, thank you, Anonymous Listener. I guess it's good that we're being compared to Flight of the Concords, and they <laughs> like Flight of the Concords. Not quite. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> no. no. He likes Flight of the Concords, though. Yeah, yeah, well, so do I. It's very, very funny. See? We're funny. <laughs> Okay, anyway, uh, moving on. <laughs> or at least somebody likes laughing at us. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same thing. Uh, it counts. Okay. So the next thing is the notice board. And there's only one thing on the notice board. It's the thing that's always on the notice board. It's the New Zealand Skeptics Conference 2015, which is in Christchurch. And it's on November the 20th to the 22nd. Do we know speakers or anything at this stage? I'm not sure I've seen any of course we do. updates about that recently, to be honest. Of course we do. We know give us all some about highlights. <laughs> well, apparently, according to the website at conference.skeptics.nz, there are amazing speakers. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I think one of them's even at this table. Yes, but the theme is apocalypse. What are you going to be talking How? about, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Yes, no, there are some interesting-looking people there. Um, and it's all about um, how the world might end or how we might all die, and um, that should be very interesting. Okay, fantastic. A nicely gender-balanced um, speaker lineup too. Excellent. Okay. I see Vicky there. And... Vicky, Karen Healy, Dr. Susie Wiles, oh, yeah. Dr. Alison Campbell, Professor oh, yeah. Kim Socher. Cool. So uh, mostly about end of the world stuff, or are some people just talking about random sceptical thingies? Well, from some of the speakers that are there, I, I it doesn't, I don't see, I don't see how what they're going to talk about has anything to do with the end of the world. Right. But um, let's see. All right. Yeah. I guess you will when you go there. Yes. Looking forward to it. Tired of waiting for the end of the world? Is the grey goo coming for you? Anxious about the significance of dodgy mine almanacs? Bothered by hordes of zombies, the colour of the moon, or swarms of assorted biblical insects? Are you up to date with your plague vaccines? Or is the planet just trudging towards a slow, warm, genetically engineered cataclysm? When the echoing hoofbeats of the four equestrians of the apocalypse ring out across the world, where will you be? 
Christchurch, New Zealand, the 20th to the 22nd of November. Apocalypse Howl! Come join the New Zealand Skeptics for their 2015 conference in Christchurch, New Zealand's go-to place for natural disasters. For further details, visit conference.skeptics.nz. Okay, and moving on to news. Scientists have discovered that cheese is as addictive as drugs. Susie. <laughs> so, drugs are um, bad, Susie. Yeah. Is cheese bad? <laughs> well. Because I'm not going to stop eating cheese, just for the record. So this is being reported in numerous ways. The article that I've been looking at says, researchers at the University of Michigan have discovered cheese is as addictive as drugs. Um and the study is actually, uh, they, they say the study was published somewhere it wasn't, that it was published in PLOS One, so actually it's a, you can go and have a look at it because it's an open access journal. Um, so what the report says... The, so who was claiming that it was published in PLOS One? No, it is published in PLOS oh, One. Oh, it is? The oh, article right. that I saw... Oh, published in the US National Library of Medicine. Yeah, which don't which is know not plus what one. that is. No. Right. Um, so... Yeah, plus one is an open access journal, and so you can go and you can basically have a look at the picture and have a look at the, have a look at the paper, have a look at the data. Anyway, so from the from the news article about it, it says that the study determined the more processed and fatty the food was, the more it was associated with addiction, and a chemical called casein found in dairy products was the reason why cheese was found to be so addictive. Um, and it quotes the scientists as saying, a scientist is saying that casein breaks apart during digestion to release a whole host of opiates called caseomorphins, which is presumably how it's all come to be associated with drugs. Right. So there is a, uh, what would you call it, uh, like a scale um, that is used to uh, quantify different kinds of food in how um, how they rate or how let's start that again. People who are basically show addictive like behavior in terms of food, mm-hmm. so they're um, basically not being able to control how much they eat, um, and uh, basically being impulsive and emotional around food. Right. There is a scale that allows um, people to rate. Uh, where foods come in this kind of how they cause this kind of behavior right and the idea is also that in terms of uh you know people can become can show this addictive like behavior towards food um and that uh it does you know eating things uh can flood the brain with um like reward hormones and things okay so this is sort of where it's all coming in relation to drugs um, and in is fact, this the in Yale food addiction scale, yeah, and, right? And there are animal models that also have been done, so using rats to show that highly processed foods are, um, are more likely to uh, make rats exhibit this kind of behavior. So they they become. Yeah, well, I guess they that basically makes sense start binge eating and stuff. Yeah. If you process food, you can generally add in more things that humans like, which yeah. are sort of more. But it's also it's also around how quickly they're pro- the the in terms of the body, how quickly they're processed. Right. You know, like how quickly they're broken down, yeah. all of those kinds of things. So, so anyway, the processed meat is easier to digest. Processed food is easier to digest, or and something it's just like that. Of, so we get the th- get the whatever it is. Yeah, and more. it's full of very different, okay. diff- you know, how high of fat it is. All of right. these kinds of things differ in how foods are broken down, and then how your body responds. Okay, so 
they did two studies uh one in um one with people in the lab i think um yeah a university study using undergraduates as always happens uh and then another study which they're calling in the community which is um an online study using this thing called amazon m turk where people um will, turk, yeah, turk, yeah where people will basically do things for you for yeah, money right? for, for peanuts um anyway and so what they did was they basically asked them to um they had different foods i think 35 different foods and then they asked the participants to um basically rank them into you know which ones made them exhibit this kind of behavior right right so i wasn't listening to this is this the people reporting or the scientists are observing the scientists have given the people a list yeah and then basically said you know oh, which of ones these of these foods, which make ones you, do you okay yeah Make you want to eat, eat. out of control, yeah, <laughs> right? Basically, I don't know how they how they um so they did the questions. Let's see if it's in the study. Uh, no, no. Okay. So basically, just self-reported. Yeah. People's memories. Well, they're just asking them. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Do you have a problem with these foods? Do you eat them too yes. much? Blah blah blah. Okay. Um. So top of the list of foods, I'm not sure what foods they actually use, but top of the list of foods that came up was um pizza hmm. um and second was chocolate right uh cheese actually came at number where was cheese but it, so if cheese came further down the list obviously it's because well pizza's got cheese on it so <laughs> pizza's yeah. going to have meat and cheese lots and of, everything uh, lots, lots of, of combinations things right. of things yeah. compared to a single ingredient yeah lots of pizza now <laughs> just triggered off by Nathan wanting food. Right. Um, so average food ratings. So pizza was first, chocolate was second, chips. I don't know whether that's chips as in potato, potato chips, chips, crisps, or, or um, the other ones. Cookies, ice cream, French fries, cheeseburger. Oh, chips and French uh, fries. Cake yeah. and okay. then cheese and then bacon. <laughs> right. Okay. Anyway, so basically, all of the the like the top ten foods were all highly processed and high in fat and refined carbohydrates. Right. All things um, that our bodies evolutionarily crave anyway. Quite. Mm. Quite like. Yeah. Mm. Um. And so yeah, so it wasn't basically just cheese, but it's also it's it's it was a um. There's lots of stuff already known about the kind of behaviors that, you know that are associated with overeating and things. Yeah. And now they're just saying that this provides preliminary evidence that some of the attributes of certain kinds of foods are what's responsible for this right. sort of addictive-like behavior in terms of eating. Right. So it's not okay. that cheese is addictive or as addictive as drugs. It is preliminary evidence that some of the features of processed foods um, – and the fact the fact that cheese was on there, I mean, it is also a processed food, and it has some of these, you know, high in fat and various things. But also, it has these other things that are involved in. Also, it's delicious. Well, there is that too. Um, but it's but why not, is so, it delicious? Is it because it has these um, addictive qualities to it? Yeah. So, so the um, and what, the conclusion uh, they make is that not all foods are basically equal in terms of this addictive like eating behavior and that there are some highly processed foods that might share characteristics with drugs of abuse and so this is to do with how quickly they're absorbed how much you you know how much you need to take of them 
um, that kind of thing. So it's so not sort of there as addictive. Using them as an analogy rather yeah. than comparing them directly. Yes, and right. it's kind of been taken, I think, yeah, in sure the right. yeah, especially with the cheese thing, because they're saying because cheese, the casein breaks down right. and makes these sort of reward opiates, opiates that Opiate that's noids, um, whatever, it is. whatever they are. Yeah. That that's kind of why cheese is is as addictive as drugs, and it's like yeah, not quite. So the answer to my original question was no. <laughs> what was the original question? <laughs> is how, how oh. is cheese as addictive as drugs? <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and there are lots of other things that might also be involved in why people um, have a, you know, this relationship with food. Not everybody, you know, people can eat the same amount of cheese and not everyone's going to start exhibiting mm. addictive-like behavior towards cheese. So there are lots of other factors too. That but sense? presumably that's yeah. the same with drugs anyway. Uh, that like is, people yeah. react to different drugs differently. <clears throat> yes. It also changes, I've heard, I don't know which podcast I was listening to, it also changes as you get older as well. Right. People actually change their response to drugs. So you'll have have you have a huge binge of drugs in your in your twenties and you get older and suddenly the, they just don't have as much effect anymore. Right. Not or maybe sure. you smartened up. Well that too, <laughs> yes, I don't know. But I don't know the the way it's being reported. Um, you know, I think of things like, you know, people who are going to take heroin, right? So not everybody who takes heroin becomes addicted to it. Yeah. But a lot of people, more than the number of people who take cheese, who become addicted right. to cheese in inverted commas. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's the other thing as well. The addiction, inverted commas, is not the same as an addiction to drugs. Right. Right. No one's addicted to cheese. No. You sure about that? As far as I know. <laughs> I mean, unless it's a, unless it's a. I'm um, addicted to peanut butter. Are you mm. right? And chocolate. Well, well we're all actual... on top of the list. So, okay, <laughs> yes, they are. Yes. Chocolate has actual drugs in it as well, though, doesn't it? What's the one I'm thinking of? Um, not actual drugs, you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to the next thing. That's right for that. Speaking anyway, of, go, uh, and, go and have things. a look at the paper. It's kind of yeah. interesting and okay. and should be fairly easy to understand. There's a link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to do that. All right. Keeping aerobically fit improves your brain activity as you age. I don't yes. understand that at all. This one's, <laughs> right this one's for you, Nathan. I thought about you when uh, I read this. Does that happen a lot, Craig? You're at home and just... Think about me. <laughs> Only in my private moments. Right. Oh, guys. <laughs> Moving on. I don't think any of us wanted those images in our heads. It's too early in the morning. Anyway, um, so some Japanese researchers at the University of Tsukuba in Japan had did a the, did study on um, old males, on old Japanese males, who were um, between 60 and 75, and they basically did um, the Stroop test, you know, the Stroop test, which is where you have words that are um, printed, yep. the names of word, names of colours that are printed right. in different, different colours, yeah. and you have to read out you the have to, name of the you word. Have to name the, the colour yeah. rather than oh, is it the the word? That way reading yeah. the word, right. and that's essentially a, something that your brain finds difficult. And so, interestingly enough, MythBusters did a a thing where they used that in the last season, I think it was, and they reckon that it's one of the tests that they the reason they use it a lot is that 
it's one of those things you don't get better at it with practice. Right. So you can actually do the test and then come back the next day and do the test again and your results will be about the same. Yeah. It is hard. Oh, yeah. It's not that hard, to be honest. But... Well, you're obviously um, uh, an older Japanese man who's aerobically fit. That's, that's exactly the conclusion that we should be taking from that, Craig. Yeah. Anyway, so what they did, let me, let me explain yes. what they did. So they, um, so they, they had this um, brain scanning, which was looking at the prefrontal cortex and looking at activity in, in that area of the brain when they administered these um, Stroop tests, which essentially are... Uh, determining how good your brain is at mental processing. And what they found was that um, there's a relationship between um, aerobic fitness in older men and the um, mental ability. And so the the older men who were more aerobically fit actually exhibited the patterns in the prefrontal cortex of activity that were similar to younger men who were able to... um, when you say relationship, do you mean correlation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so being being aerobically fit gave you better mental performance as you aged. Correlated with. Yes. Well, I know you're trying to wiggle out of this, Nathan, because <laughs> it's bad for you. All I'm saying is that correlation does not imply causation. Well. Well, it might imply causation, but what's the other? What's the thing? Yeah, well, but they're showing that there's an association. There's an association. Yes, that. Um, but the interesting thing about this was that um, the younger men they looked at the activity in the prefrontal cortex, and during this test, all the activity was concentrated on the left hand side of the prefrontal cortex. But in the older men, they exhibited what they what they call as Harold, which is hemispheric asymmetry reduction in older adults where rather than all the activity being concentrated on the left-hand side, it actually spread spread out across the prefrontal cortex. What if that's a result of, of plasticity, where well, the brain is getting less yeah, good at it, so but other the bits interest, of the brain cut, cut in to take over? Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. Huh. So, But the, the younger men who are better mentally able to perform these tests actually had all this concentration on the left-hand side, yeah. and that's what they were seeing in the older men who were aerobically fit. Oh, so the ones that were fit had the same yeah. left hand side. So they exhibited oh, okay. the same sort of uh, patterns. So the unfit ones were spreading it across. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. So that is kind of weird. You would think that using more of your brain would actually allow you to be sort of ment- more mentally able. Hmm. Not necessarily, because so, you've got processing time of transferring data from different parts of your brain. It's all concentrated in one area. Yeah. And also, what I'm suggesting with the plasticity is that it's, that's the brain trying to compensate for a lack of cognitive ability by co-opting Maybe. other cells to do the job. Yep. Yeah, so that's that fits with that. <clears throat> mm. When you're obically fit, you don't need to do that. Apparently. <laughs> One study. We'll see uh, <laughs> See what the... Nothing's going to make you... Nothing's going to So, yeah, that was that was quite interesting. Okay. So, yes, get with the program. Get fit, Nathan. Let's see what I can do. <laughs> um, I love this. This just says, Comet Lovejoy giving away free alcohol. Yep. And I have no idea what that's You have to be able to be there a... to collect it, though. Right. <laughs> oh, so, generally, this is a, a comet that's made partially of alcohol. It's well, they're subliming it into the. So, what they what they found, of course, when comets go around the sun, they spew out yeah. um, water, and now they've. Um, analyzed um, in 
different comments comments um, what's actually coming out and um, so Comet Lovejoy was a comet that uh, went around the sun in January 2015 and um, it was I think it was sort of as as bright as the Whoa. comet Hale Bop um, back in 1997 um, anyway as well as spewing out water it's spewing out all these complex organic chemicals including um, Ethyl alcohol. ethyl alcohol, which is the same alcohol that's um, used for alcohol, alcoholic beverages. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's spewing out all that. Uh, apparently 500 bottles of wine um, <laughs> per second. <laughs> per second. That's wow, that's a drunk comment. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so they reckon that uh, back in the, back sort of about 3.8 billion years ago, there was this late heavy bombardment period where the earth was being bombarded with comets mm. and so comets containing these sorts of materials might well have yeah. um, seeded earth with the, the complex, um, the complex molecules mm. that led to the initial development of simple life forms or not yes might well god might have did it it's the other option yeah yeah so yeah, that was that's quite interesting. So um, they they are able to detect these by looking at the um, microwave signatures. So essentially, it's a sort of a spectral analysis of the mm -hmm. um, microwave that's coming off um, the comet as it's being excited by the sun, and you're figuring out what um, different molecules they they see there. That is very interesting. That's cool. Hmm. So perhaps um, we can go and mine comets for uh, oh, well. <laughs> That's something that could accelerate the space program <laughs> to do such a thing. Yes. Now, this I'm not sure I believe. Someone's going to tell me that the bubonic plague wasn't spread by fleas. Well, yes, this is another <laughs> another one that I was reading. So... Oh, so Bronze Age bubonic plague. So, so not what, the bubonic plague that we're all thinking of. Well, there yes. are various plagues <laughs> right. that are spread by this um, Yersinia. That are caused by Yersinia pestis. Right, they're yes. caused by Yersinia pestis. Okay. Yeah. So bacteria. Right. That can also, um, uh, it uses fleas as one of its modes of transport yes. into people. And but the really it cool thing, no, wait, wait, wait. Right. So the really cool thing about it is that it. Um, oh, hang on, is it this one? It makes them frustrated. Yeah, fleas. Yes, they keep. Yeah. They have to bite on. Yeah, so yeah. it makes so the bacteria basically form a biofilm that blocks the the, the, the stomach from the, receiving the, any. Yeah, the yeah. fleas' ability uh. to to take in blood and so right. they keep every time they keep basically <laughs> trying to feed they um kind of they suck up a bit of the blood it mixes with the biofilm of bacteria and then gets essentially injected back into the person and so it's uh -huh. a really 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 cool way of bacteria yeah, really so the fleas are starving to death and yeah, they just and keep they biting keep biting because they're desperate right. for food so so the, that's the normal yeah. mode of transport and then so that's how people get bubonic plague and then um, it can, if it goes to the lungs, it can then be spread person to person right. so as a pneumonic, pneumonic plague. plague. Right. Ah, and then there's I also see. septicemic plague where it basically rampages around the, the bloodstream. Right. So, so the interesting thing 
is that the fleas didn't always transport this bacteria that way. And what they did was they found a whole bunch of skeletons across time. They, they did the study on 101 different um, skeletal remains and they sequenced the DNA in those skeletal remains and these were spread across from about um, five and a half thousand years ago to um, 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 2800 years ago and so they sequenced the DNA and in the in the DNA that they were sequencing there was this Yersinia pestis um, DNA which not they, in all of them no in not in some all of them in some of them right they found that they and, had pestis and by looking at the DNA of the Yersinia pestis, they were able to see that the older DNA mm. didn't have a specific mutation that caused this biofilm. Didn't have a gene that they basically yeah, needed yeah. to... to, to yeah, um, flea infection. Yeah. So basically cool. the older plagues were spread essentially with human-to-human human contact. There was, there was still... And it wasn't an... until the, this mutation came along that allowed the fleas to... Right, um, so they the found disease. an Iron Age one that dated around a hundred, sorry, a thousand BC that did have it, but the much older ones didn't, yeah, didn't. have it. Yeah. And they found that all of the Bronze Age strains had another gene that's important in, in infecting the lung. Hmm. So it's likely that sure. those earlier cases were, um, were more human to human, so required... Yeah, contact that way, hmm. um, unlike the flea stuff, which isn't, which is yeah, not because it's carried in the yeah, rats. And so, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and they also say that those early, um, those early uh, cases might also have been linked to migration. So why people actually moved away? Because mm, if everyone around the, you is, uh, is dropping yeah, yeah. dead, then yeah. um, it might be one of the reasons why people. Mm. Um, started migrating huh. from Russia, maybe. Must have been, yeah. Well, it must have been an amazing time. All those people dying around you, and I but wonder if frankly, they'd have all been were, dying. I yeah. mean, they would they would dying all the time anyway. So, but. would there have been people who are naturally immune to it? Um. Well, uh, so in pneumonic plague, it's pretty bloody deadly. But yes, it doesn't it doesn't kill everybody. Right. So, this is kind of. Currently, ninety percent of people who are untreated hmm. will die. They still leave ten percent. Yeah. So hmm. I suppose it also plays into the sort of population concentrations. In that, hmm. um, if in the early days when the populations were as concentrated, that yep. that mutation arose, that essentially allowed a higher mortality that that might, mutation might not have been fixed in the population of the bacteria anyway because it didn't allow the spread if everybody died of it. It didn't allow it to spread to um, to other populations. Yeah. Um, so it's not a mutation. Well, okay, I guess it's it's picked up a gene, whether where it's picked it up okay. from and whether so it, it can do that in multiple mutation. times. It it's been, not uh, a, I mean, it, it, obviously it that strain from, has changed, right. but it's not a point mutation or something that's right. allowed it to do something else it's actually picked up a gene that is giving it another right so it could have been a horizontal power. gene transfer could be yeah, yeah. Right. I, I actually don't know much about that mm. um, gene that's mm. kind of interesting cool yes interesting it's stuff pretty amazing and actually someone said that in the article it's pretty amazing they're able to look at this thing and say oh look that's the gene that 
allows them to infect fleas and they just know this well that, that because that's what it's people amazing. like me do you take genes you know you take an organism yeah. you, you knock it. out a gene yep. and you say this is the role that it plays in infection and then you put it back in and go yes that's been confirmed wow. so all of the all of these studies you know and understanding what 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 in a genome contributes to infection is all done by people saying okay well let's knock these genes out and find out what they do mm -hmm. and then a lot of strain a lot of bugs it's really hard because actually they will have multiple genes to do mm -hmm. something because if especially if it's a really important trait mm -hmm. um but yes isn't it cool what you can do with some understanding from basic science sciences people awesome. being curious about how things so kill if it's if it's multiple genes that cause something that is that that's less likely to be a sort of a horizontal gene transfer or no no it can still be no there's okay. it, it can still be and it can come from multiple sources and it might have come with something else and there might be it might have conferred fitness in some other environment right um, it might so think a lot of things can come in on um through viruses and things and it might just be that yeah, yeah. you don't know the circumstances around when that when it came into a population of bugs mm. And what other uh, advantage it gave them? Mm, cool. So, for example, there's a kind of cool in uh, there's a kind of cool example and happening in New Zealand at the moment, where uh, to do with Staph aureus, which is a nasty superbug, and um, for for so many years it's been treated with an antibiotic containing cream. So skin infections have been treated with this cream, um, and so this so what we not seeing, literal cream from cows. No, a no. an antibiotic oh. containing ointment. Oh right, okay. And what's happened over the last I don't know five ten years or something five years probably um, is that the strains that we used to have, which were sensitive to the antibiotic in this cream, are kind of being replaced by ones that are resistant yeah. to this antibiotic in the cream. But with that has come another set of antibiotic resistances to ones that we don't necessarily use in the cream but they're coming along in the same strain right so we're kind of so these things about you know well, they might have one trait yeah <laughs> but they might bring other things with them that will then give them advantage later mm. on in some state so it's kind of cool super bugs hmm okay yes there you go but yeah that's, that's cool the bronze age stuff is cool Right. So, uh, all right. So the next thing there, alien life discovered. Have we discovered an alien <laughs> superstructure? So usually the answer to that is no. No. Well, no. The answer in this case is probably not. Okay. Or but maybe. here's the cool thing: is it might be. Okay. Because and. I'm doing this mostly from memory, but I'm also referring to Phil Plate's article, which is actually a better link than the one we've got there. Um, team of astronomers saw a strange um, pattern of of light from a from a star. So you know how they discover exoplanets mm -hmm. when this planet crosses in front of the star, and the light dims a little bit, and then it comes back up again when the star goes off. So there's a um, I'm actually pulling some of this from um, Skeptics Guide to the Universe as well because I think they talked about it last week. Um, so there's like a, this crowdsourced, um, what they call it, citizen science initiative, mm. where they pass these um, anal uh, not analyses. Or is this Galaxy the, Zoo? Might be. Something like that, yes. Um, yeah, but this is an individual star, not a whole galaxy. So it's a similar sort no, of no. concept. No. the All oh, right, okay. 
because one of the things where you basically get people to do stuff. People categorizing galaxies. Right. They're not, they're not yeah. categorizing them though. What they're looking for is they give them the the output from the star, or what they've captured from the star, and then people look at that and say, "Is this interesting? Or yeah. is it weird in some way?" And then they flag those, and then if it gets you know seven flags or whatever, I then um, the scientists will look at it and and further analysis. So what they're doing is basically using using humans as pattern recognition machines mm-hmm. because they're better at it than they're machines. better at the computers because it's one thing computers just can't do really well so Yet. they found this this one star and the the output from the light is has a strange pattern of dips almost like a series of dips if i understand it correctly rather than the light goes down and the light mm-hmm. comes back up again and basically no one knows what it is as as of right now haven't seen any recent news about anyone figuring it out. But yeah, but it's probably aliens. <laughs> no one knows what it is. Um, and then sort of there's all these old, these uh, various hypotheses that people have put forward. Like uh, maybe it's a, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a relatively old star. If it was a relatively new star, then it might be like asteroids or comets, f- comets or fragments and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but it's not. It shouldn't, shouldn't have this. It could be um, dust or fragments from a planet that's been, you know, smashed mm-hmm. to pieces. Um, but what they would expect to see, if it was, uh, if I remember correctly, is sort of this uh, is infrared s- signature, because it's generate it will generate heat as well. Okay. Uh, and you don't they don't see that, and so there's all these things that they've have gone through and thought about, and eventually someone saw the the paper and saw what they were and discussed it with them and said, well could be um, energy collectors from an ancient from an alien civilization of some sort a Dyson sphere a Dyson sphere but the actual Dyson sphere not the sort of fictionalized Dyson sphere that most people think of right see when I think of a Dyson sphere I think of you know a completely enclosed star the actual original Dyson sphere apparently was more like um, a series of uh, solar panels floating around the star but lots of them so it's pretty much evenly Right, covered yep. by these these solar panels, from which you can harvest energy, right. obviously, and then beam it back to to the planet or planets hmm. where the aliens are. So that's what people are saying: is it could maybe possibly be one of these things, or something like it? You know, maybe orbital. I don't know. I'm just making shit up now. Something like it, a alien superstructure of some sort. Um, what Phil Plate says is basically probably not. Um, but they are taking it seriously. In the yeah, day. so it, it says here that serious possibility. SETI um, has removed its Allen telescope array from its regular schedule and focused it primarily on the star. Yep. Yes. So, so maybe, maybe they'll detect something. So it's not necessarily right. But it is, it is an actual but. possibility. But it's unlikely, just in the sense that it's unlikely that there's aliens on any given planet. But hmm. if there are aliens, it makes sense that eventually, if you look at enough planets and enough stars, you're going to see some evidence of it. Yes, but yeah, it's maybe. a cool story and it's fun to think but, about. But but isn't isn't a lot it, of media, of course, are. But there's also the whole. Um, like them being around at that exact moment that yeah. you... Uh, They're not necessarily around. 
It might just be leftover. Okay. Right. So this could be the remains of a civilization. Okay. Um, but yeah, that would of course add to the to the yep, you're absolutely right. To the unlikelihood of it. Yes. Right. All right. So yay. Exciting. But and as I think they said on the SGU, um, it's one of those things where it's probably gonna be like Oh, oh, this this might be aliens, and then someone will come up with some more evidence. Hey, it's a little bit more likely that it might be aliens, and then twenty or fifty years down the road, it'll be like, yep, now we're pretty sure that that was aliens. So <laughs> it's not going to be a suddenly boom, there's aliens, right. but gradually over time, it'll be gradually accepted as a as a legitimate theory mm. or hypothesis. Hmm. Um, well, maybe we might detect radio signals, in which case we'll be absolutely sure. Well, you say that, but it would have to be pretty good evidence to be absolutely sure that it was aliens. Sure. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, no big deal, Craig. What were you doing yesterday? Anything interesting? Oh, well, I just... Um... Oh, really? Were you just? <laughs> I met up with um, a prominent sceptic who is here from the US by the name of Joe Nickel, and um, he... He is um, one of the sort of founders of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry that sort of started the skeptic movement. Um, and he's pretty famous for doing sort of skeptical investigations of things like ghosts and so on. He hasn't Religious actually statues found and any ghosts and stuff like yet, that. But he, he um, yeah, he generally goes and investigates these things and says, oh, well, here's this weeping statue and here's why it's weeping. It's not actually a religious miracle. There's actually a, a rational explanation for this and whether it's fraud or... Um, he's done a lot of work. I want to say he's written a book oh, well, about written lots the of Shroud, of, Shroud of Turin. Yes. Was one yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was one of them. So anyway, he was here briefly in Auckland um, and he... Uh, was being hosted by a history professor, um, was wanting to kind of do a, a maybe a bit of a sceptical investigation. Um, we actually tried contacting various places to see that are supposedly haunted, um, including the old um, King Seat Psychiatric Hospital, which is now the Spooker's um, entertainment scary entertainment venue i don't know if it's interesting or not but i just found out because when i emailed them apparently they passed my email on to a property manager right and what he said in his reply back to me was actually um sort of no fuck off he was very 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 firm about that um but he mentioned that the king seat is the site or it's it's multiple things it's actually residential and multiple commercial properties right so obviously whoever owns that building is renting out bits of it to different things oh interesting so it's not just spookers there's actually other people in there as well right and residential as well apparently oh that was quite funny actually i actually emailed him back because i, I want i said something along the lines of um you can rest assured that we're not the crazy kind of ghost hunters we're not going to just show up because in his email he said something along the lines of um uh, we do not give permission to any group or your group in particular to come and visit this property ever for any reason. <laughs> and, and that was sort of the end Does of that it. mean I can't go to Spookers? Oh, I hadn't thought of that, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. You ruined it for me. He seemed quite uh, quite nervous that we'd just show up right. with our EMF meters well, and start tromping around. The, the interesting thing is that if you actually Google haunted places in Auckland, you find um, oh, Paranormal Auckland, I think it is, and there's a group haunted of Auckland? Or haunted Auckland, yeah. Well, so there's a group other. of paranormal researchers 
who ruined it for everybody. Ruined everybody else because they'd gone around all these places with their Being weird meters and so on. And um, but they do seem to get in to yeah. these weird places. So um, anyway, one of those things probably were if we'd happened to know somebody, we yeah, probably well, could have gotten in. That's true. So and if we place... had more notice, it was very very oh, short notice. Yeah, uh, we didn't really find out about this until about Wednesday. Um, so I didn't find out about it until Friday. Thank you very well, much. Otherwise, I would have taken the um, the day off. Right. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so so Joe Joe was interesting. It um, it wasn't. He was he was actually on assignment from a particular organisation to do some work here in Australia. Oh, okay. um, so he was looking for particular things. But one of the things that did interest me was that apparently back in the nineties there was a a mass hysteria case um, at the port of Auckland um, about some leaking chemical or something which caused this mass hysteria. I've been trying to Google it and find out about it but haven't been, able, haven't been successful. Um, but yeah, uh, they were interested in that. Um, he was also interested in um, cryptozoological things like the moa bird. So mm. he actually visited the, um, the museum and um, he got to look at uh, the... Uh, reproduction of a huge mower, which is um, pretty amazing. Cool. So, yeah. So did you actually end up going anywhere haunted in the end? No. No. <laughs> no. So we, um... part of the problem, as I thought, is that our New Zealand is just too pragmatic to have a decent number of haunted places to go to. Well, I think that's the case. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a few on this haunted Auckland place. So it's from a group of ghost hunters, right? Yeah. So in in my um, attempting to find a place that was supposedly haunted, I actually and available and available, I actually contacted somebody from Lopdal House. Oh yeah, um, which is a, a theatre, um, art gallery kind of thing in Titarangi, mm. um, which used to be a hotel back in the nineteen thirties, and there was an article back in the Herald and back to, to about two thousand and six that claimed that it was haunted and that there was a a scullery maid who was um, making noises and so on. Anyway, in trying to get hold of people, I spoke to some people on the phone about this, and um, including a past president of the um, theatre there, um, and she said, no, no, she didn't think it was haunted, she hadn't felt any presence there, but told me about how she'd been on a trip to Larnet Castle in Dunedin and had been spooked out there and felt this presence. And, I see. Um, so, yeah, I thought, oh, okay, interesting. So, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so I did, we did have a... Um, I did uh, spend some time having lunch with Joe and um, Bob, who's um, his, uh, a historian professor guy. So um, we did record that. We'll see how it turns out and whether... He did have some interesting yeah. things to say about uh, about some of the investigations he's done. So, so maybe we'll, we'll some, try and include that. Maybe an interview later in the episode. Yes, maybe. So yeah, that was fun, and I got I my photo with him. So, so much right now. Yeah. Okay. You jealous much? So Thanos, <laughs> Susie. Apparently, there's a controversy. Thanos is coming to <laughs> Theranos. The Theranos. Oh. Yeah. So I don't know much about this. I don't um, know anything this about this. I've never Craig heard is... of it before. So apparently this oh, is a company no. who say they can do diagnostic tests on a pinprick of blood and they can do lots of diagnostic tests on a pinprick of blood rather than lots of blood samples they needed. So, so you know if you need stuff Sure, that's done, they take they take like, like a vial. They come of, and they, they take, take like a hundred vials, yeah, depending on how many tests. Yeah. yeah. So these guys claim 
that they can do it all from a pinprick of blood. Because you use some of the blood to do the test, right? And then you throw that blood away. Yeah. Normally. Well, but it's also about what, how much blood is actually needed for the test. Okay. And so their claim has been that they have proprietary equipment that allows them to do lots of different tests in a different way on a small amount of, of blood. And they're mm. va valued at lots and lots of money. And they've linked up with Walgreen. Um, Are they like a pharmacy? Yeah. yeah. In yeah. The, in who basically uh, puts their... The Theranos Wellness Centers oh, um, into their stores. Mm. Um, so there's been some stuff in the Wall Street Journal basically saying, hang on a minute, this is all sounding a little bit dodgy. Yeah. And the claim apparently is, I can't read, I haven't read the Wall Street Journal one, but apparently one of the claims is that they actually aren't able to do the, the they don't have the diagnostic tech to do this they just dilute the blood um and then do the tests on kind of standard machines that are yeah. kind of come from other companies so does that give you um, equivalent results well no so this that? is what no. they're saying is they're saying actually this might mean that um you're getting consistent results and various things mm -hmm. yeah and so they've been asking for the data now it turns out that there's rules that essentially allow these companies to police themselves and this oh. is where, uh, and only have to hand their data over to you know like an inspector when required kind of thing. right um and so they just so there's been a request say okay well show us all your data so we can have a look at it and see whether your things really are and they claim they have put all of their data online but scientists are saying yeah no, this is actually not data that we can analyze. Sure. So, the so, really... so effectively they're publishing the results rather than the actual data itself, themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the interesting thing about this is that it essentially was a startup and um, the, the woman who's behind it um, is, uh, what's her name? Elizabeth something? Yeah, Elizabeth Holmes. Right, she's kind of the darling of Silicon Valley. So she was at um, Stanford University when she was nineteen, and she essentially dropped out to pursue this idea. Right, she's now thirty-one. So this was twelve oh, okay. years ago that the startup came out. They got some funding. They developed. So probably not from Kickstarter then. No. So they developed this supposed technology um, over a decade. And it was a, so they're basically doing it in secret. This is not like your traditional startup that goes out and invents some new mm. software product and then puts it out to market for people to test and validate very, very quickly. Like, for example, Facebook. Um, when Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook, he did it essentially in two months, got the product to market, and then there was feedback and people yeah. were evaluating it, whereas this has taken 10 years. <clears throat> That seems um, like a warning sign to me. Yeah, yeah. So that's a red flag. Um, apparently, the the board of the company is populated by um, prominent defence contractor um, type things that don't right. really have any medical knowledge, um, and so yeah, it all looks pretty dodgy. And it does seem pretty implausible that you could take this pinprick of blood and do all those tests on it. Um, but yeah, show us the evidence that it actually works. Right. And uh, that that has not been forthcoming, and she, and so the company has got very defensive about this. And um, 
there apparently there was it was linked there was a one of the people who was working on the product uh, committed suicide um, basically saying that you know, this technology is not working out and it's just not working and anyway the company has kind of denied that there is that link well and so as a result of all the stuff that's going on in the wall street journal at the moment walgreens have basically said that they will not open any new testing centers until um the controversy has been has died down died or down actually or, yeah. actually been proven that yes this technology actually, actually does works. work because yeah. it's yeah. also died down that, enough so there's no f- that um, they actually haven't handled as many tests as they yeah they were claiming that like mm. a thousand tests and dna testing mm. and all that sort of stuff which yeah seems like a huge leap in technology to go from requiring multiple vials to a single pinprick and they did this mm. because they they want to allow people who who are afraid of needles and ha- afraid of having their the, blood the, taken. I mean, the so, idea is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and the, and but, the, I guess the point is, if it works, sure. then show, us. show it. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, but I could say, well, saying. I've got an idea of having a flying car. Well, that's a fantastic idea, but mm. let's actually show me show that the technology is actually buildable <laughs> before mm. before we go and start <laughs> try and it. pharmacies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Although I guess it'd be a bit harder to sell flying cars if they didn't actually exist. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. We'll uh, totally report back on that in a future well, episode. We, <laughs> we do, like we do that all we the time. We do all the time. We follow yeah. up. Right. So there um, you go. Okay. The next segment I'm told is what the fuck, Susie. Oh no! Do we, we have no, 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 no. <gasps> no, we should have removed that. Sorry. No, what the fuck? That's a placeholder. What the fuck, Susie? What the fuck? We've got nothing to talk about. <laughs> wow, I'm disappointed. Well, Get on with it. pharmacy council. Oh, Woo Zealand! It's Woo Zealand, everybody. Pharmacy council is trying to change their code of ethics to allow pharmacies to sell alternative. Which medicines. they already do. They yes. do. Yeah. So they're trying to make it allowable within the rules yeah. that pharmacies are supposed to follow. So not a little bit about this, but who's in charge of telling us that one? Well, I think... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. Says Ben and Olivia, but I don't see... Okay, so the story story is that basically it's against the Pharmacy Council's Code of Conduct for pharmacists to supply, to sell and promote uh, treatments that are not efficacious, so that there's no evidence that they work. Which, of course, means that they shouldn't be selling homeopathy yep. and various other things. So, uh, but possibly, yet they do. Right, so they do. <laughs> and possibly as a result of all of the agitation from the Society for Health... Science-based medicine. Is science-based? science-based? Based? I thought science-based healthcare. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. SBH. Yeah, them. Science-based healthcare. Right. Fabulous. Great people. We love them. Possibly because of all the agitation they've been doing... There's now been a proposal to change the code of ethics so that they can sell them. Yeah. Right. So what the society said was, hey, look, your code of ethics say that your pharmacist yeah. shouldn't be selling this stuff because so there has to be efficacy. Yeah. So the response, so so the response is, is, is change that. Uh, we'll change yeah. the rules. Right. <laughs> and so there's been a fantastic amount of stuff going on. So they've basically been, in terms of this proposed changes, they've basically been open to consultation. And so lots of people have been putting in um, things, including but, the SBH. Yeah, but what Ben and um, Albert and Olivia um, Albert, according to this, 
Yes, well, they're married. Did she change Looks her? Like. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. so Ben and Olivia have basically rounded up a whole heap of clinicians uh, and medical practitioners around um, New Zealand, some really heavy-hitting names in terms of academic medicine in New Zealand, and they have written... Um, a, so they've put in a proposal but they've or submission, basically saying that, that you can't change the rules, this is nonsense, Yes. Um, but also uh, written a letter to the editor of the New Zealand Medical Journal basically sharing their concerns about the changes and saying why they mm. why mm. the code of ethics shouldn't be changed that's very 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 cool mm. and, and then um, they actually got onto at... tv news as well yeah Did it's they? been awesome they, oh, okay. there was a um a thing by uh i think it was it was on nine to noon um an interview with mark honeychurch about it um and then also somebody from the pharmacy council um and they, the pharmacy council person was just like, yeah, no, yeah, the, yeah, we should change it and people should be able to buy what they like. It was all this kind of choice nonsense. Um, there are still pharmacists, so there's a group of pharmacists who are saying we absolutely agree that that should be yeah. policed. There's some who are not. The pharmacy council, I think it was the people who are, you know, represent the, the pharmacists, pharmacies as places where that sell stuff. I mean, yeah. there's a huge conflict of interest, right, mm. of somebody who is there who has an, a kind of a, an air of respectability. I mean, yeah. pharmacists want to be able to, you know, they want to be able to um, prescribe. prescribe stuff. Yeah. So if they want to do that, then they, they need to decide whose side are they on. Are yeah. they on the side of evidence or are yeah. they not? Um, whereas, of course, they're also uh, businesses that, that sell a whole heap of shit. Yeah. Right. Um, anyway, so this is great. This is really cool. It's really awesome to see Ben and Olivia kind of spearheading the medical side of it and mm. using their qualifications and their contacts to really kind of rally the medical profession to mm. stand up for science. It's awesome. Good job. Good job and everybody. really good job Hello. from the SBH. SBH on their stuff. It's yeah. very, Super. very cool. Super. Super. Right. And the New Zealand Skeptics also put in a submission. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Yay. Yes, so hopefully the Pharmacy Council actually pays attention to this and can see that there would actually be um, negative consequences and public distrust of them if they actually go and change the rules. Public outcry will be enough for them to get, yeah. Yeah. So, um, no name on this one, but apparently there's a Tanifa in the Waikato River. Didn't we already know this? Well, well, I don't know. I've, uh, so there's this video. You better tell us what a tanifar is first for our ah, non-New Zealand okay. listeners. Yes, okay. So a tanifar is a mythical Maori creature. Says you. No, well. No, keep going. Well, we've never ever seen one. No. Nobody's ever said, here is a tanifar, but supposedly it's an eel-like creature that inhabits rivers that is essentially meant to protect um, places from evil spirits and, mm. and so on. Um, and so there was a video that um, went around of some huge, a huge eruption of bubbles that were coming out of the Waikato River that uh, then people were speculating and saying, is this a Tanifa? <laughs> I'd be pretty, pretty willing to bet that it's actually not. not. Right. <laughs> but uh, but I, thought, I thought that was interesting. Um, but yeah, if you watch the video, it's like this huge explosion of um, bubbles. Which, mm. um, yeah. Sorry. So what is it if it's not a tanifa then? 
Alternative uh, well, hypotheses, guys. Uh, some sort of guess. Yeah, guess escaping, yeah. escaping from, from, a from a fissure underneath the river. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't know. An eel farting. Yeah. Yes. Very, very large. Very, very large <laughs> eel. A monster-like like eel. Like a like <laughs> eel. Right. Okay. But yes, people okay. are jumping to the Tanifa conclusion. Oh, of course they are. Right. Show us the body. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, and Sir John Scott, Susie. I'm not sure who that is. To be okay, honest. so Sir John Scott was a professor of medicine um, at Auckland University who actually est- helped establish the medical school at Auckland. Um, and it, he's died, and it's very sad. And the reason it's relevant to the skeptics is because he was instrumental in... Uh, stopping the uh, cancer quack Milan uh, Brick, who was who basically came to Auckland as a, a kind of refugee in the late 60s, claiming to have medical qualifications and set himself up um, as being able to treat cancer at Auckland Hospital. Ooh, wow. It turned out he had no medical qualifications. And actually, while he was supposedly studying, he was in prison. Um, <laughs> and he uh, claimed he had this astonishing cure rate. Um, he was using i believe something obtained from apricot seed kernels um and it was uh, it, it, he and he even people loved him he was very charismatic um this milan and uh sir john scott basically showed that he was a quack and had him and got him out um mm. he then went off to um the cook islands so he was so he basically Sir John and others managed to get him but it was mostly Sir John I believe um, managed to get him out of New Zealand right. um, he was removed from the register of you know med- med- medical doctors um, and he relocated the Cook Islands where he basically carried on doing his thing and there's actually a graveyard uh, in Rarotonga called the Brickyard of all the people who died because obviously he couldn't cure their cancer right. um, he in the so this guy's presumably not still alive no he is is well it's actually unknown so he um after the cook islands he then moved to uh queensland and set up a practice there Um, surprise surprise yeah and then he relocated so when then when it started getting hot in um in Australia, he moved to the US. And again, I believe it was Sir John Scott who basically pursued him and um, and told the authorities in the US that who he was. Um, and so he was convicted in 1980 of, of practicing medicine without a license. And he served part of a six-year sentence and was deported. And then since then, it's not really known where he's been. He thought he might be in the UK. There's been other things. Um so yeah, this amazing kind of man who not only had an incredible medical career and has done amazing things for medicine in New Zealand, but also mm. um, was fundamental in getting rid of this of our own cancer quack. Uh, there was a fantastic documentary about it made by TVNZ in 2012 called Cancer Man, oh, which interviewed right. John and and talked about his thing. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be available I to heard see. Of that. Yeah, it was really really amazing. Um, and very sad news mm. that he's died. And how old was he? Uh, so he was born in 1931. So what does that make okay. him? 69, 79, 84? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, 86? Something like that. No, 84. 
beautiful. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. And he'd been he'd been quite unwell for a while. Okay. Yeah. Now that's an interesting story. I wonder if we had somebody turn up today doing the same sort of thing, whether a doctor would be able to shut him down like mm. Sir John Scott was, or whether there would be this and social media outcry about <laughs> alternative medicine and yeah. cancer cures. And well, and there are still people who, um, you know, who believe that um, Brick was a was their saviour and stuff. Right. But, yeah, <laughs> people were dying left, right and centre. Um, yeah. But some people were cured. Yeah. Yeah, and people, um, people in Australia and New Zealand followed him to Rarotonga for treatment. And so, right. Um, it's very sad. Wow. Yeah. Mm. I, th I think there was, I can't remember if this was true from the documentary, they were saying that they were basically taking the bodies and burying them at night because there were so many of them. <laughs> they didn't want anyone to see them. They didn't want to see everybody right. was dying. Jeez. Mm. It's cool. I'm, I'm so... I think the skeptics, New Zealand skeptics, have managed to um, talk to John before he died. So I think this was so Stephen and someone else went and interviewed essentially him. interviewed right. him because right. it was very there's you know there's not much on his Wikipedia. In fact, they put set up a Wikipedia page for him. It's kind of not much of this information is really known. And actually, in his obituary from the university, it kind of said you know that it would be really sad if a lot of this, a lot of actually mm -hmm. what happened at the time sort of got lost with his death you could write a whole book about it so mm. they certainly went and interviewed him and hopefully we'll find out more about well maybe if they have some audio we can uh, borrow some of it um he what did he die of i i don't think his speech was very good at the end oh, okay. so i don't think there is any okay but i think i think he came to some of our conferences i mean he was right. very i think he was involved in the yeah that's skeptics, what i had heard um, yes he was movement. quite involved and i think I'm sure he came to the conference, my very first one, where I talked about um, MMR, and he came up and talked to me afterwards about, yeah, about okay. the importance of medical people being, you know, more vocal about things right. and stuff. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, that is sad. Okay. So now is where, if the interview audio <laughs> turns out okay, we're going to put an interview and talk sure. to Joe Nickel. Paranormal investigator extraordinaire. Well, you get to hear me eating lunch and listening to Joe talk <laughs> and uh, putting in a few. We'll hear uh, the uh, conversations of the people at the next table over yeah, talking about. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, we'll see how it turns out. Otherwise, it'll be sort of 20 minutes of awkward silence. <laughs> um. So you were in New York, in rural New York. That's where, that's where uh, Bob Bartholomew and I met, and uh, I was uh, looking into the uh, Lake Monster at Lake Champlain, a, um, a fabulous story in itself, okay. of which there are many, many sightings and many aspects. My funniest one at Lake Champlain was went into a bar just to, to get an idea one night of what the locals thought and I just sort of announced loudly in the bar 
I was staying in a cabin near near the bar, and I announced that I was there to look for the, the, the lake monster, Lake Champlain. And this this uh, guy, kind of an older, smart alecky kind of wiseacre, said, "Have you seen the sign down there?" But the you know, and there was a big, almost like a small billboard. And written in columns was a list of the years and the names of people who had seen the monster. Right. And he said, have you seen that? And I said, yes, yes, I've seen it. And he said, well, that's a list of the local drinkers. <laughs> Which is one of the funnier lines you come across in my work. And yes, his name was on it, and he had seen, seen something once. But uh, Bob was showing us around, and we went to the William Miller... Sure. The, the interesting thing about the um, the sighting board is that what you had noticed was that um, there was a really big influx of sightings around 1980-81, which corresponded with the Manzi, famous Manzi photo being... That's right. That's right. Good point. Um, Sandra Manzi took a famous photograph of the alleged monster... Okay. Leaving lots of questions unanswered and uh, it's a fairly dubious, a dubious picture. For example, she threw the negatives away. Huh. Who does then, that? <laughs> and yeah. then apparently lost the original and had to have a copy made from... Then, then couldn't remember where she took the photo. Yeah, and, so and had, no, had no idea, not any idea where she took the picture. All of these things would okay. be sort of alarms for red flags, yep. There's more red flags in her story than a communist convention. <laughs> when you really, when you look at it, it's just one thing after the other. But uh, back to William Miller, uh, near Hampton? Hampton, New York. Yep. Hampton, New York, sort of um, at the lower end of Lake Champlain. And in the early 1800s, Miller was had believed that the uh, world was going to end, uh, and based on Bible verses, right. ba based sure. on yeah. his analysis of the Bible, he had arrived at a particular date that this was to happen. And you can go to his home and see the the place. And nearby is this very striking rock outcropping, and it certainly looks like a very special place. It's, it's not like anything you've really ever quite seen. Mm -hmm. So it, it helped me picture all these people, these followers of him, you know, whole families and the like, gathered there on the appointed day, many of them having sold their all their worldly possessions or having given them away, I guess. So this is, and that was what was called the Great Disappointment, isn't it? Was that? Um, happened twice. Right. It was the... Um, there was the first one, and then he said, oh, I misinterpreted. Yeah, but well, we're getting ahead of, of, of that a little bit. I, right. I'm not sure if that's what was called the Great Disappointment. So all these people came and gathered on this date, and basically that day came and went. Um, or another way to put it is that the people waited and waited yeah, and, and waited. And the day ended and nothing had happened. What to do? And I'm sure everyone turned and looked at poor Reverend Miller, who must have been quite chagrined at, at uh, the situation. 
So he went off and recalculated. And, uh, so he obviously truly believed that he actually had the date right. And I, I would, I would think so. I yeah. would think so. And uh, I'm not sure, but Bob, did he, he found a second date? Oh yeah, he, then he recalculated about a year later, and um, everybody got all excited and gave away their belongings, and nothing happened again. Right. Any kind of lost favor. You would think that would be about time. So it's it's one of many movements that are sites you can go to in upstate New York that's become known as the Burned Over District. Right. It's rather famous because this is where uh, the Shakers uh, really started. This is where the Mormons started. I mean, in, the, in the upstate New York, not all yeah. in, you know, around Lake Champlain. The Spiritualists, uh, the Vox Sisters at, at Ro near Rochester and Hydesville, New York. Okay. Which is of special interest to me, having you know spent a lot of my career looking into spiritualism and several others that I'm probably forgetting right now. But quite a number of these religious sects and fervent um, uh, outbreaks of, uh, of religious, yeah, cult form, uh, all in that area, so much so, and, and due to the sort of fervency of these beliefs, was called a burned over district. Uh, Joe, were you familiar with the Handsome Lake movement? I mean, that was a fascinating, what's that, the Indian who um, they call him Handsome Lake, and he started like a cult, there's a whole cult no. started up about him, almost like a Jesus figure. Yeah. Don't know that. Another one, though, was the Oneida community of the state of New York, which was a, some sort of a utopian, a kind of utopian place. Now, here in New Zealand, they have the Cooperites. Yes. And that's a whole fascinating area. Is it, is it coercive? Is it not? Is it a cult? Is it a, you know, what would you call them? Um, they get a bad rap, I think. Um, yeah, well. The media, as, a, as a cult, kind of, but I don't know if I would call them a cult or not. So. Well, there's, I, I, there's I, sort of two, two definitions of cult. The, well, you have to have a charismatic leader, really, don't you? In the popular sense, a cult is sort of a, a group of people who are brainwashed by some cult leader and have kind of crazy beliefs, but its original meaning is simply pretty much a new religion. Like a sect. A new religion. Yeah. Just somebody has gathered people, and they can be an offshoot of, a, of, of another uh, religion, the sect, or they could just be something new. The Catholic Church actually uses the word cult to this day uh, simply to mean within the Catholic Church a special group of people with a particular interest. Like you could you could speak of the cult of Saint Bernadette. Right. Or the cult of the Shroud of Turin. And it's not a derogatory. Skeptics would use that in a very derogatory way. But it's just meant a, a, a group of people focused with some devotion, perhaps, yes, on some some fairly fervent belief in uh, something that's quite obscure about the faith. But wait, Bob is about to say something no, clever. No, no, my definition of cult would be if there's two groups, 
You're in the cult. I'm in the sect. Sure. Right. It's all on how you define it, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. I mean, there's a fine line between, you know, what's what's normal, um, legal, moral, um, and it, it's so easy to, to. The Catholic Church in the United States was labeled as a radical. Um, there was a whole Catholic scare in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, and 60s that, that they were considered a cult, Catholics, and there were riots. Right. Whereas they are considered a mainstream religion. Again, pretty much whenever a religion starts, like Christians around Jesus, or even before that, the followers of John the Baptist, these would have been cults. And the fact that a cult, again, by this sort of definition of it just means an early form, but that definition, what, what gathered around Joseph Smith, one of these burned-over district guys, who was you know, part religious zealot, part fantasy prone individual, and part con man. Yeah, right. Um, and, and womanizer, I think. Sure. And yes. Counterfeiter and some other things. Uh, but he um, he formed, you know, what became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, now known as so the Mormons. So he got to start up in Brooklyn, New York, didn't he? That's right. Okay. And so he was a part of that. And that would have been, at that time, correctly, not used in necessarily derogatory sense, just in the dictionary sense, that was a cult. Sure. Today, the Mormon Church is a large, well-established religion. Yeah. So, by the dictionary definition, it is no longer a cult, nor is mainstream Christianity or, or anything else, but it's so... Only but, because but, of the number of members, basically. But the skeptics tend to use the word, but, but even when skeptics do it, whether they're talking about the Moonies or the Transcendental Meditation yeah. people or whatever, they're usually using it to compare um, or, or they're describing something very much like this formative religion. It's a group that has a, a guru. They're focusing around him, a set of special beliefs, and so forth. It's used very derogatorily to mean people who are brainwashed. And, 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 and many of those, of course, never become mainstream religion. If you think, for example, of the group The Heaven's Gate, yeah. um, they committed mass suicide, and so did uh, Jim Jones's uh, People's Temple. So, here, here in New Zealand, there's a, there's a, a group, the, the Exclusive Brethren, yes. yeah. which has gotten a lot of attention in the media. Mm. They, um, I don't think they go to university. They, they have to go through a... a yeah, I don't, I don't know a lot about them, except that um, when I lived in Palmerston North, I had a neighbor over the back fence who was part of the Exclusive Brethren. I mean, we had very... Um, our conversations were kind of very short because they, they weren't really allowed to associate with, with other people and their children weren't allowed to play with my children. And, yeah. But yes, we, we also have the, the Glory of Ale community, which is the, um, which was started by um, Neville Cooper, yeah. right? And that, I suppose, essentially is a cult. Um, and there was there was a controversy back in the in probably in the 90s where he was convicted of sexual molestation of children in the in the community and and he's spent five years in jail for that but he's out now and he's still a leader in the community itself because they don't interpret him having sexual relations with somebody who's 14 or 15 as being a sin 
that. Yeah. It's just different, different interpretation. Yeah, indeed. But, but the way they run things it is very much cult-like, they, and they essentially prevent children from going on to higher education, so um, I don't think I've had anybody go into university, and uh, all of the... All of the Teenagers essentially go into sort of vocations that are based on the farming and, and so on. And but if people want to leave Gloriaville, they can, can't they? But they, 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 then they, they don't. So essentially, they're sort of they're shunned, excommunicated. Yeah. Well, they're run as a charity, and the people that work there aren't, aren't paid. No, they just and if they ever leave, they essentially have a, a bank account with very small amount of money in it and they're just not they've been born into that community that's all they know yeah and they just don't know the ways of the world and <laughs> completely naive about things but to get back to william miller so his movement didn't really last uh, which suggests that if you're going to predict the end of the world I think it's the lesson we've learned here, boys and girls. If you're going to predict the end of the world, best not to, to give a specific date. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly not and one many times. That. You must do that. Try not to do it twice. Right. Yeah. Well, it's going to happen at some point. Maybe a hundred million years from now. Yeah. Do you have a particular area that you specialize in in the skeptical community besides that? Um, no, not really. My personal interest, I initially got into skepticism by, I was working with a, a workmate who was a creationist, and that's what got me interested in skepticism. Um, so I kind of find that fascinating that people can believe that sort of you're six thousand years yeah, old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And he he was a true believer in all that sense. So he was homeschooled his schooled his children and. Uh, See, so, so many people, so many students I see at school as well, I mean, they're a particular religion, and 99% of them, their parents were the same religion. You know, yes. I mean, we're such a product of our environment. Yeah. Yes. You, you uh, generally have the religion that you were born into. And <laughs> would, would you say New Zealanders are particularly religious? No, I think... Pragmatic, more pragmatic. Yeah, I think that's why we had so many problems actually trying to find um, a haunted place for, for Joe to have a look at. It's um, kind of like people maybe believe in ghosts, but it's kind of treated as a joke, really. But. Well, New Zealanders may be somewhat secular. Um, I think they're all praying for the all-black stuff. Right. Especially during the game. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. The, 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 the thing that stands out to me here is that on Saturday, any Saturday morning uh, during rugby season, which is much of the year, you get the, um, it's a really coming together thing, isn't it? Yeah. For, uh, from a cultural standpoint, social standpoint, you get, you get Maoris, you get people from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds standing on the sidelines cursing the referee here, uh, and just that's a bonding exercise to a certain extent. I think kids playing together really um, really helps bring people together. Saturday morning is the big sports morning here. Yeah. Netball or rugby or soccer to a certain extent now. So how long were you in Australia for, Joe? Uh, I left New York on the 9th. It took me about three days to get through 
right. across Iceland and down through uh, China and uh, where I, I stopped over briefly to have a, a bowl of wonton soup, okay. as you would expect me to do, and then uh, on to Brisbane, so you can do the math, but okay. about a three-day trip. Yeah. And in Brisbane, spent about a week. Okay, and what were you doing there? I don't want to say a lot about that because it, it gets to people trying to, sure. you know, uh, second guess or things and beat people to punch and so forth. But uh, certainly looked into the Yowie matter and okay. some very haunted places and, okay. and a sinkhole that. Might have been caused by a UFO. I'm, I'm doubtful of that. And did you find any evidence for those things? Lots of evidence. Lots and lots of evidence. None of it any good. Right. But lots of it. And um, then I had the conference. Okay. This and, is the Australian Skeptics Conference. Yes. Right. Yes. And um, I uh, I was the, the one of the headliners and a closing a closing evening um, speaker and people actually I slept through it of course I had heard it a few times before but uh, people were um, quite uh, quite attentive and laughed at my jokes and so of course it was very nice and then um, from there oh I, of course I naturally ate some kangaroo and I had. Uh, various other uh, examples of Australian fair and so on, and then um, flew to Canberra okay. and um, did some more Yowie research and looked at some more haunted places and had some more local animals in there. And, um, and now I'm in New Zealand. Yeah, okay. Where I must emphasize that the authorities here confiscated my little jar of of Australian honey. Well, that's because we're parochial about honey. Yeah. Can't have Australian honey coming into New Zealand. Well, of course, they pretended it was some other matter, but wasn't there a big thing recently with bees? Like bees were dying. Yeah, there's a well, that's thing the called the varroa mite, which was yeah, killing off the bees. Yeah. Did you declare the honey? Did you declare it? Yep, because if you don't and they and they x-ray your bag and find it, it's then they can find you. Right. That's why when we entered New Zealand, I declared Selena. <laughs> yeah, but he no, called you honey and they, the authorities just right. went right after it. <laughs> yeah, your hair looks good. No, I'm fine. Yes, okay. I did tell the um, the uh, New Zealand customs guy who, who was very, very sorry that he had to take my jar, little jar of honey. And he said, but you can buy some New Zealand honey. Right. And I said, yes, but I'm on to you guys, I said. Uh, the, the Australians will confiscate that. He said, oh, yeah, right. And I said, I, I think you guys may have a racket going where you're just getting all kinds, acquiring all kinds of honey uh, with, this, with this thing. He was laughing at that one. And I said, even if I got by there, I said, they might confiscate it in China. So where are you off to next? And I wouldn't be surprised if my own country doesn't let me bring all this stuff in for the same reasons you don't. Yeah. It may be a it may be a honey conspiracy. I'm, I'm working maybe on it. Is. Maybe you should just maybe you should just eat it while you're here. 
I'm trying to, and Bob Bartholomew will be my witness that I, I've already had some good New Zealand honey, and I didn't try to put it in a jar and take it in here. I ate it right at the breakfast table. Manuka honey. Yes, yes. Made from manuka flowers. Yeah. Manuka bush. Yep. Yes. Yeah, there is a yeah, tree. So manuka honey supposedly has antibacterial properties. Um, well, which are a little bit disputed. Maybe you should put some on your leg. You know, that might be good for my injured leg, which right. I which I injured. Well, see, when you go to Australia, doing you doing yali research. Right. Okay. I cut my I cut my leg on a sharp a sharp boulder. Well, maybe what you should do is you should get a doctor to say that the honey is actually a medicine, and then they well, probably have to let you in with it. Across the street from where we're eating at this very moment is a naturopath, yes. and um, he might be able to confirm your your, your thinking there. Right. With a special special badge on it, so it's medicinal honey. Mm -hmm. How was that meal, by the way? How was it? Very good. Excellent steak. Good. New Zealand's known for beef cows. Well, that was either a great interview or a <laughs> mediocre interview or twenty minutes of silence, as we mentioned. And now we're moving on to Delia's dubious device for the day. Um, and it's I an have, order online. I, ha I have, I have two. Um, so the first I saw yesterday when um, uh, I was out. <laughs> We've talked about their things before. It's this company called Osim who make um, kind of massage devices and various things. And this one okay. is just so hilarious. It's called the. Um, <laughs> it's called the U Hip. So right. lots of their products are called U something. I'm, right. I'm assuming that's sort of a play on the eye stuff. But the U hip looks like a butt in okay. a pair of jeans. Right. So it is a... This is not the first link, link you're talking U... about, is it? No, 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 the, no, second, the, second, the second link. link. Okay. Huh. So Osim U hip. Oh, there it is. Um, and it's advertised with a picture of a woman's butt and a pair of very, very tight denim shorts. And that's basically what the device looks like. It mm. looks like a pair, a butt of in, in very tight denim shorts. Right, okay. And the idea is that you put your butt into it um, and then it massages. So it's like a, it's like a, what's, like a shell. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, uh, it, it, it's, um, how to describe, how, I mean, it just Oh, looks... there's, actually, there's actually a picture there. It is. It's a bit like a shell that clips on. Yeah. Your butt. yeah, and it looks like you're wearing a pair of very tight jeans. Right. It's $500. It's actually got the jeans printed on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, and it's, it's got the denim material. Do you wear material. it around or do you just use it in your house? No, I think you just use it in your house. I think okay. you look pretty silly. Um, I was just wondering why it's got jeans printed on it. And it's... Well, because it's... Because <laughs> it looks like a butt. I don't know. Okay. Um, what's really important, of course, is that it targets the Juan somebody acupressure pun Chiao. points, giving Chiao. you a healthier, firmer hip and butt for $500. So buy this very bizarre device that looks like a butt. <sighs> um, Did you know? And it's all based on the fact that, yeah, sitting down makes your butt bigger. And so apparently okay um and so you should use this device and it'll massage you and help you drain lymph and do all sorts of nonsense anyway i just thought so you should get one of these to um to do exercise with so i don't get <laughs> stupid of a mold it kind of 
it looked like you had to have a small butt to fit in it in the first place. Yeah. It did. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Me. No, 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 I did no. Yes, but no. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't look, it looked like you, you know. Yeah, it's not huge, I mean, you basically it? sit in it, so it's, it's yeah. of a defined size, so you needed a butt of a certain size to you fit in it. You know what it is? It's not even a butt thing. It goes, It's imagine it's sitting on the chair yeah. and then just sliding in next to you like a pair of sunglasses. Yeah, okay. So it's not, you're not like sitting on this thing. By the no, it's, it. well. Not, well, just according to this picture here. Yeah. I it's got these little um, acupressure nodules Points. or whatever. Yeah, it's and supposed they, and they go to, on to your but it, is, it does say it's supposed to to do your butt as well. No, it, it is. It's, it's, it looks like Does you're wearing lumbar. a pair of pants. See, it's a lumbar thing. It's bizarre. Anyway, anyway. there you go. Oh, I just saw it yeah, yesterday being sold at Sylvia Park, and it, and it made me giggle. Oh, you can actually buy them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, New Zealand oh, dollars, four hundred and ninety-eight right. New Zealand yeah. dollars. Yeah, and Sylvia Park. Go and you can even try it out if you have a small enough butt that fits in it. Wow. I'm well, guessing yeah, you didn't try it out. <laughs> Not the size of my butt, no. Okay. <laughs> um, did I even take? I think I might have taken a picture of it. Anyway, uh, so that's my device number one. Device number two is a lot more expensive. Gosh, yes. And it is for you Star Trek fans. The a kind of tricordery type device. That is awesome. Right. I was just saying that the, the four nine nine zero presumably includes the level one certificate training as well. As, as listed I on the thing there. I believe so. Yes, so. But it doesn't sound like you need much for the training. <laughs> well, if it's just like a tricorder, it's going to yeah. be really easy to use by anybody. Yeah. It goes beep boop and then you say, I'm detecting life forms. Well, that is essentially it. Apparently what you do is you put it on people and it will, <laughs> let me get this right, it... Yeah, you wouldn't want to make a mistake. It figures out what frequencies or something is they're emitting, and then it does something to them, and then it sends them back, and that will heal pretty much everything. So it's a Rife machine, essentially. Uh, something. It's a it's a special Japanese technology. Japanese Mm. technology. I think it was Japanese. Um. This look. is just the ordering page. How do I find out what it actually is? Oh, we, if you go, if you go to the products page, oh, yep. you can see the Cenar Pro is the larger practitioner version of the Enar therapy device. Gotcha. Yeah. The Cenar Pro uses the very same reflex biofeedback electroenergetic therapy as the Enar, an interactive computer modulated energy neurostimulation to relieve pain and so help reduce disability and improve functionality. Yeah. Right. That. What a load of bullshit. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Reflex biofeedback electromagnetic, no, electroenergetic therapy. That's, <laughs> that's quite something. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the way so I saw it described was it takes, the, takes your energies, it does something to them, and then it pushes them back to you, and then that makes you all better. Yeah. Apparently, they're doing Western University research. Woohoo! Right. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Let us know how you get on, and then we'll wholeheartedly endorse your product. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, but I thought you trickies like it because it's like a little hand scanner thing. Probably be cheaper just to go and get an actual, get an actual tricorder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just about. Um, yeah, I mean, for what it, for what this actually does in real life, we could just get an app on your phone that pretends to be yeah. a tricorder and then use yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just um, as accurate. Yes. Enables placebo effects, I'm sure. Yeah, mm, it's a very expensive mm. placebo effect, but I guess the more expensive, the the, the better, better the right? placebo effect. Yes, yeah, mm. stronger the effect. 
Hmm. There you go. So if you want Fantastic. a $5,000 well, one. I can't say I'll be rushing out to buy one. <laughs> I wonder how many they've sold. <clears throat> well, you wouldn't need to sell. I don't know. Anyway. All right. So moving on to the word of the day. The word of the day is wantage. See, I'm struggling with this because that's a place in Oxfordshire. Ah, is it? Yes. Maybe that's what the word means. Well, that's, Maybe it's a trick question. That's... Oh. It's it's the feeling that I get just before Christmas. Ah, okay. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> um, yeah, it's a it's a little village in Oxfordshire. <laughs> wantage. Is that um, your official answer? Because I'm starting typing now. Uh, tapy, want, tapy, tap, tap, tap. Wantage. Susie's first. Um, well, no. I mean, I I should get a point because that is truth. That is exactly what it is. So I'm going to stick with my answer. It's a it's a yes, but we're looking for chat. definitions, not when you can, you cannot define a noun. Um, well, a you place. can define a noun. Well, yeah, sure, but, sure. But, but what I mean is, <laughs> it can't be a place, a place name. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Well, that, was, that, was, that, was that a rule? Was that? Was that? Well, I don't believe that being mentioned. Craig is correct. You're not going to get a point if <laughs> the answer is not a place in whatever you said. But it is. That is one of the answers. May well be, but it's that's not the, not the object of this okay. game. All right. Um, it's to de de decipher word meanings. Okay. So, Craig, are you going with feeling that you get just uh, before Christmas? No. I'm going to go oh. something to do with. Um, but I don't think I've got any better choices. Something to do with wanting things, but. Uh, wanting. But mm, probably not. We surely wouldn't be that obvious. Are you going to put wanting things as your official answer? Well, it could be I'm also gonna, related I'm... to wanton damage. Right? <laughs> oh. Wanton. I'm going to find answer because we're running out of time. No, no, no. Just let me, let me think. Let me think. You guys are you just, thinking? I'm uh, talking to Craig. Yeah, exactly. And I can't think because you guys oh. are busy talking. Okay, um, everyone shush for about five minutes while Susie oh. thinks. Um... Oh, now all I can think about is Christmas, you bastard. <laughs> um, wanting stuff as you get older. <laughs> yeah, I think there's no prizes. Wrong. Take a deep anyway. breath. Okay, what is it? So, Craig, what are you going with? Feeling you get before yeah, Christmas? No, no, yeah, okay, whatever. I know it's wrong, but... And Susie said what? Uh, something to do with wanting things as you Which get older. Which is basically older. my answer. <laughs> wanting things as, as you get you older. Get older. And the answer is <laughs> wantage, deficiency, or shortage. And you're oh. both wrong. Okay. I'm not accepting either of those answers. Mm. Wantage. Well, it's well, kind it, of related. You, you, yes, are, exactly. you are want something. Right. Yeah. He was wanting things for Christmas. Nah, diff different usage of the word. Okay. Sorry. But look it up. It is also a village. Not I'm not yet. saying I don't believe you. I'm saying it's not the answer to the quiz. Okay. Okay. Right. okay. And zero points for everybody else. Yeah. That was a, that was a good, good round. Okay. <laughs> and Craig, you've got a quote for us? Yes. This comes from a, an American medical researcher by the name of Lewis Thomas. The capacity to blunder slightly is the real marvel of DNA. Without this special attribute, we would still be anaerobic bacteria and there would be no music. <laughs> oh, nice. Yep, that is quite cool. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. The errors in copying DNA are what makes evolution happen. Lovely. I'm trying to spin a joke here about Marvel um, X-Men characters or something. Yeah, superheroes and DNA, but... 
Never mind. Right. Didn't work. All right. I'll yeah, probably, really funny. I'll I'm sure it would have been out. great. I would have been. It would have been fantastic. Right. <laughs> and that's our episode for the day. You've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to send us a message or ask a question, check out our Facebook page or send us some feedback on our website, cusp.org.nz. And then we'll come back. Well, we could keep talking about how you're so jealous. Anyway. Did you, you, got a, did you get a little wooden nickel or something? I did. Yes. Did you bring it with you? No, I didn't bring oh, it with you. I didn't even, no, not even going to show I us. thought you might steal it. Huh. Me? Steal a coin? You did some close-up close magic in front of me. Oh. A little bit. It's very cool. 